Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 25, verse 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. So this proverb warns us about trusting an unfaithful man. A sprained ankle and a bad tooth are potent pictures of the problems caused by unfaithful men in troubling times. Both a sprained ankle and a bad tooth are worse than useless. It's not just that a foot won't walk or a tooth won't chew. It's just not that they just won't do what they're supposed to do. These conditions alter your life. The pain is constant and dull, but wearing, and sometimes throbbing. But if you bump the foot, if you bump the jaw or the tooth, the pain is debilitating, enough to stop you in your tracks, enough to make a grown man cry. So let's consider the metaphor. That kind of pain, that kind of dysfunction is like trusting a coward or a treacherous man in times of great peril. God created us to live in society. No one can do everything by themselves, which means that we must delegate and we must place trust in others. But that can be very dangerous. Napoleon Bonaparte, the great French general, said, that the people to fear are not those who disagree with you, but those who disagree with you and are too cowardly to let you know that they disagree with you. This is because during the safe times, they can fly under the radar, and their hypocrisy gives the impression that things are okay. But when times do get tough, as they inevitably do, and you need to rely on them, there's nothing to rely on. In hard times, the traits of loyalty, integrity, diligence, and courage are invaluable. And if a man or woman lacks these traits, it is unbearably painful to any who put their faith in them. Think of Jews living in an attic in, in occupied Europe during World War II. Where would they be when the Nazis showed up if their host was unfaithful? And not all times of trouble are life and death. Jesus said that he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Wisdom says that we need to be training in all of life for the hard times. We must instill loyalty and courage and integrity and diligence in our children and see that they maintain and mature in them as they grow up. The nursery the playground, the sports field, the chore chart, 
and catechism class are all part, part of the story. And then, as adults, we must live this out in front of them, in marriage or in singleness, in the labor force or in unemployment, as statesmen, as churchmen, as Christians, we must be trustworthy. We must display faithfulness, courage, and integrity, lest we deny the gospel of our Lord. And wherever we lack, we must confess and repent and look to the King of Righteousness for strength and for forgiveness. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please do. Psalm 22, and it's a psalm of David, but the psalm is quite explicitly about Jesus and his suffering, particularly his suffering on the cross. There's particular verbiage within this psalm that just cries out cross, crucifixion, to Christians. The, the psalm starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which Jesus quoted on the cross. David cites public humiliation, and he gives vivid descriptions. He says, they, they pierced my hands and my feet. My tongue clings to my jaws. I can count all my bones. And they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Even in the psalm, there's a quote of the enemies. He quotes his own enemies, and it's quoted by the, the Pharisees at the cross. It's a sarcastic line that the enemies say, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. All of these verbal cues inescapably compel us to see Jesus in Psalm 22. He's all through this psalm. And the anguish and the suffering that Jesus bore there is archetypical for us. It's, it's the archetype. It's that bearing your cross is the, the archetype. Jesus frankly commands us to take up our own cross and follow him. So the suffering that Jesus bore on the cross is the picture for how we are to live our lives for him. Now this is where this psalm gets extremely important and helpful for us. Because the psalms are divinely inspired prayers and they give voice to our feelings and emotions and they teach us how to express our feelings and emotions and how to handle them in a righteous and godly way so psalm 22 is about the cross but it is so much more than that it cries out in anguish in the midst of confessing God's power and his faithfulness. And right at the heart of the psalm, right at the middle of the psalm, the first half of it's about the crucifixion, but right at the end of that section of the psalm, God answers David. God answers Jesus. 
It's at, it's at the uh, end of verse 21. You have answered me. God has an answer. And the rest of the psalm, the second half of the psalm, is overwhelming and all-encompassing praise and confession of the power of God for salvation to the ends of the world and for all time. So this psalm points us not only to the cross, which it explicitly does, but also to the resurrection. The resurrection. It's the pattern of life and death. Death and resurrection. This is the pattern of the psalm. And that's the pattern of life on the earth as we live in service of Christ. So our text is Psalm 22, and it starts with three cycles of crying out and confession. This is the, the crucifixion portion of the psalm. So there's three cycles of Jesus crying out, David crying out, and then making a confession of faith to God. And the first cycle starts with a lament describing David's and Jesus' anguish. Verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. Psalmist David answers this lament with a declaration of faith based on God's historical faithfulness to his people. Verses 3 through 5. But you are holy. I feel forsaken, but you remain holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and were delivered. They trusted in you, and were not ashamed. So David remembers the past. He remembers history. He proclaims that God is a good God who does deliver based on his past. The second cycle of crying out describes... David's public humiliation and Jesus' public humiliation. Verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And the second crying out is followed by a second confession, which recalls David's own and Christ's own lifelong trust in God. Verses 9 through 11. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, for there is none to help. So first David remembers the past of God's goodness to his people. Now he remembers his own faithfulness to God and his, his life of righteousness, his life of faithfulness, his life of trusting in God. And he reminds God of this. The third cycle, the third lament is longer. 
And this third lament is a vivid portrayal, a vivid description of his suffering. Verses 12 through 18. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and, feet, and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And the final confession, the final proclamation of faith is a, is a request for God's deliverance. Verses 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And there the lament stops. There the requests stop. And there the answer comes. You have answered me. So as men, in this archetypical suffering... We bring all these things to our God in prayer. And God answers us. At the end of the day, God answers us. And the nature of the answer is crystal clear in the rest of the psalm. The rest of the psalm is a combination of praise for God's deliverance and confession of faith in the power of salvation. So praise you, Lord, for you have delivered me. And I believe that you will save the world. And it again takes the form of three cycles. First, there's praise and confession in the context of God's people. Salvation starts close to home. It starts with, with us as individuals, and it goes out from there. It starts in our hearts, then it goes out from us to the people of God. The first cycle, verses 22 through 25. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear Him. So you see this this declaration of faith that God does save the afflicted. I cried out in my agony, God delivered me. The next cycle is that this praise and confession extend spatially outward to the ends of the earth. God has saved me. He saved his, he saved his chosen people. This salvation will go forth into the world. Verses 26 through 29. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before Him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. 
But every mortal man will confess God's lordship. Everyone will bow him, even in death. Bow to him, even in death. We will, we will be forced to bow to Christ. And the third cycle here is praise and faith extended now from all of the earth to all of eternity, to all of time. Verses 30 and 31. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. So this answer from the Lord is glorious and universal salvation. So now we come to application. And the first point of application is that we must exhibit faith in suffering. If Jesus goes to the cross and he tells us that we must then pick up our cross and follow him, we know that there is suffering in this life. And we must exhibit faith as we encounter suffering and hardship in this life. And exhibiting faith in suffering, trust, trusting God through hard things is hard. It's difficult. It is not easy. Jesus himself sweat great drops of blood because of the agony of his soul as he was heading to the cross. It is hard, but it is possible. And we know it is possible because God became a man and modeled it for us. He showed us that we can do it. He showed us how we can do it. God never asks you or me to do something that He doesn't pave the way for us to do it first. And on top of that, we are guilty sinners. We deserve suffering. We deserve punishment for our sin. We've broken God's holy law and His commandments. And Jesus bore that penalty on our behalf even though he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it at all. He was holy and perfect. He never did anything wrong. And yet he went to death on the cross. He humbled himself to that point so that we might be reconciled to God. This faith in suffering is exhibited in a threefold way. It's correlative to the three cycles of crying out and confession in the first half of the song. Cry out. That's the first step to exhibiting faith in suffering. I was, I was preaching about prayer because of Psalm 4. Was it last week or the week before? Um, stop, drop, and pray. Remember that. Cry out to God when you are suffering. This is necessary. This is prayer. Speak to God. Cry out for help and for deliverance. Cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is my soul in anguish? Express your discontent with the status quo. Hate sin. Hate its consequences. Hate suffering. Cry out to God. But never curse God and die as Job's wife counseled him to do. Always. Submit yourself to the holiness and the methods that Scripture gives to us to pray. 
So pray the psalm. Pray with the psalm. Maintain your confession of what you know about God. Our text, verse, starting at verse 3. I'm going to skip a little bit. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. You know that. The Bible tells you so. Our fathers trusted in you, and you delivered them. You know that. The Bible told you. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. You know that. Even in the midst of suffering, God can deliver you. And he will if you are faithful. So hold on to your faith and cry out and pray for deliverance. The second step for applying this faith in suffering is to recognize the evils and wrongs that you are dealing with. Identify them. Name them. Pray specifically and pray, pray directly. This has several advantages. The first one is it brings clarity. When you name this, the, the problems you're dealing with, it brings clarity. It helps you to think clearly about them. Helps you to start deciphering through them. Instead of this, this overwhelming oppression of just feeling crushed, now you've got an identifiable enemy, something to attack. You have something to deal with. Name your problem. And it, so it gives you clarity of thinking. It gives you clarity of what needs to happen in order to right the wrong. Once you've named it, you, you can start studying it. You start learning about it. You, know, you start learning about the, 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 the tweaks and, and the, the, just the nature of that problem. You can go read a book on it. So you, you've never dealt with depression before. You've, it hits you, and you're just crushed by it. But now you've named it, and now you can start studying it and learning how God tells you to deal with it. Read up what the scriptures talk about with whatever your problem is. Get that clarity. Name the evil. Recognize it as what it is. In the psalm, David, in this section of it, claims to be a worm. He says, I am a worm, and a reproach among the people. And then he points to the presence and the cruelty of his persecutors, how they mock him. So recognize that there's two different kinds of problems that happen in the world, two different kinds of evil that we suffer. Some of it is because we are worms. We're sinners. It's consequences of our own sin. Recognize what you need to confess. And make it right so that you can move forward from that. Seek forgiveness. Recognize it. And then also recognize where you are oppressed unjustly. And you can pray for God's deliverance and his condemnation of the false oppressors. The wicked men who are oppressing you. Identify your problems so that you can then work on them clearly. So now your suffering has a name. It is identified and its cause is identified. Identified. That's the first first advantage of recognizing the evils in, that you're dealing with. The next one is when you name your problems, when you name your suffering, it keeps things in perspective. Once you've named the problem, you've defined it. It has boundaries. And this produces faith because God has no boundaries. He's bigger than your problem. It's real easy when you 
don't identify what the problem is, to feel like the world is uh, yin and yang, good and good versus evil, and we're, you just got to work one way or the other. But no, when you identify the problem and you put it in script in the light of scripture, God is bigger than that, and He can take it away and He can destroy it. It keeps things in perspective because God is limitless. He took us out of the womb, and He is ever near to us. From the beginning of life to the end of the world, God is there, and He's powerful to save. And then the, the third advantage of, of this clarity is it helps us to be thankful. If you pray specifically and experience deliverance, you can now identify and recognize the blessing. It's like praying for, oh God, give me transportation. And then somehow you get wherever you're going, and that's very general. But it, instead of you pray, God, give me this, this thing, this car, that motorcycle, whatever it is. When you get it, you can thank Him for it, because you know it was directly from Him. It helps you be thankful to pray specifically. The third aspect of faith in suffering is endurance. So we've got crying out, naming it, finally endure. Endurance. We have the gospel in God's word. It is given to you and to me. God has opened the book of life for us. He's written our names in the book of life. And he's guaranteed for us the conclusion that he will deliver and save and that he will bless and give honor to those who are faithful, and he will hold accountable anybody who is not faithful. You know the truth. God has told you. And you can trust it because he is the author of it. He, he, gave, he made the world, he gave us life, and then he entered the story and he revealed his work to us in scripture. And by his spirit, he entered the story. And we know that life in this world is not purposeless. We know that justice will ultimately prevail. Therefore, we can endure. We can stick to it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Blessed are you when that happens. Happy are you when that happens. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's from the mouth of God. Jesus said it. Blessed are you when you suffer for my sake. Peter reiterates it in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Like what? Did Jesus not tell us to pick up our cross and follow him? No, you know this is coming. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy if you are reproached for the name of Christ. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. And similarly, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 17, For our light affliction, our suffering, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, 
Well, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And again in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The scripture does not mince words on this. We have every reason to endure. We have every reason to believe that God will deliver and He will sustain and He will strengthen us through any trial or suffering that we can encounter. So pray, express your emotions to God, define your problems, and then take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because death is not the end. Death is only the gateway to resurrection in Jesus. Death has lost its sting and its victory, and that is evident in the rest of our application. Once we die to ourselves, once we give our lives over to God, we can be made alive in Him. This life is a declaration of what God has done. Living as a Christian is a declaration of faith. When you get baptized, you're saying, Jesus Christ is King and Lord over heaven and earth. When you show up at church, you affirm that Jesus Christ is King and Lord over heaven and earth. When you do what He says, you are loving Him and affirming that He is Lord over heaven and earth. This life is a declaration of what God has done and it's a proclamation of an intent to worship Him. Yes, Jesus is Lord and I will serve Him. I will do what He tells me to do. And it's a promise to believe the promises that He gives you for the future. And it again follows that threefold pattern. It starts close to home. It starts in our hearts. In death and resurrection, in belief and repentance, God changes each and every one of us individually. He puts a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. He lives inside of us via His Word and via His Spirit. Our first duty is to declare our own faith. To worship individually in spirit and in truth. And then to believe the promises that He has for, for us, for you and for me, individually. Just like Paul said in Romans a, a, a few minutes ago, the promise that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Identify with Paul. These glories are for you and for me. Then it moves out. It moves out to our church community. It moves out to our families, our neighbors, our brethren. Here in the church, we declare God's wonderful works, that He has not despised the affliction of the afflicted, and He has heard our cry. In fact, we're actively engaged in counteracting affliction and evil. That's what mercy ministry is. That's what giving money to Love, Inc. is for. That's what your, your tithe money is for. It's for mercy ministry. It's for proclaiming the gospel. It's for relief of the oppressed. So here in the church, we declare God's wonderful works, and we do God's wonderful works. 
We praise Him with a good will and with a strong voice. I love singing in our church. It's beautiful. It's glorious when I hear you singing God's Word, praising Him. Praise Him with a good will and a strong voice. We sing with all of our hearts, and we confess God's splendor and peace to the world in the church. Here in the body of Christ, we worship God. Here we teach and believe the promises that He gives us in the Scriptures. And then this, then, is a means by which the Gospel goes out and God overcomes the world. And we believe that He will overcome the world. That's the second step in the pattern. God saves His people and He saves the world. The church militant is the church victorious. All the ends of the... This is verse 26 of our text, Psalm 22. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. We believe that. In the resurrection, God has enthroned Jesus as Lord and King of heaven and earth, and He has all authority. And He will exercise all of that authority until every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and every enemy is defeated and the last enemy that will be defeated is death. So His Lordship has no fear or limit by death. He's overcome it. The final step of this declaration of faith and this willingness to serve and this belief in the promises has to do with our faith for the future. We can proclaim God's goodness, we can keep His commandments, and we can believe His promises for the future because He is the God of the future. We declare with Psalm 22 that a posterity shall serve Him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. That He has done this. This faith is exhibited in an embracing of life. Not only do we say God holds the future in His hands and it's good, but we show it by how we live our lives. This means we love having children. Count the number of babies that are... It's a small congregation. The... The ratios are way off compared to normal churches. We love bearing children. We love bringing life into the world because we believe God has a good future for His people and for the world. It means that it's worthwhile for you and for me to invest ourselves in this world. We're not all running around like chickens with their heads cut off, cut off trying to, to, to fix everything and, 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 and uh, you know, patch up a sinking ship. It's not about that. No, we can be deliberate and intentional and faithful in investing in the world because God will save it. He has a good plan for it. And if you're doing it in Him and for Him, whatever is done for Christ will last. We can invest with a good will. And it means that there's hope for the world. It means we can rejoice and embrace the life that God has given us here 
despite the suffering. Because this is a foretaste of the glory and the love that God has for each one of us for all eternity in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Most of us know the Old Testament account of Noah. Noah was commanded directly by God to go to the city of Nineveh to tell the people there the message which he had given them. This is Noah 1, verse 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amenite, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You might think that hearing the voice of God would be just the motivational speech that Noah, the motivational speech that Noah, sorry, Jonah would need. But Jonah was up to date and current on all the current events of that time. And he knew that the people who lived in Nineveh, the Assyrians, were idolatrous, proud, and ruthless. And they were bent on world conquest and had long been a threat to his own country, Israel. The Bible tells us that Jonah didn't like the plan that God for him, God had for him, so he thought he would just get away from that plan by jumping on a boat and head to Tarshish. Tarshish was about as far as away from where Jonah lived in Israel as he could get. The, t the distance would be as if, if Jonah lived in Howell and Nineveh was in Washington, D.C., about 500 miles. But Jonah got on the boat that was going completely the opposite direction. Nineveh was east, Jonah was headed to Tarshish, which is about 2,500 miles west. So that's about like from here to Los Angeles, or actually a little further. So Jonah was on the run. The account of Jonah is like that of David and Goliath. The odds were against him. The magnitude of the oppression was evident. How can God break this army down of barbaric men? Well, you remember what happened to Jonah. He got on the boat to Tarshish, the opposite direction the God had told him. The boat got caught up in a big sea storm, and Jonah was thrown overboard and swallowed alive by a large fish. And he survived there for three days and three nights until the fish spit him out back up on the dry land. And God spoke to Jonah again when he got back to dry land. He said, Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Hear that? The same as before. Call out to this message. This time, Jonah obeyed. He had a bit of a hike to get there, but he did. And uh, he, he spoke, spoke the message there. But what is this message that God had for Jonah to tell? It too was simple. It was, seemed simple, one might say. It was too weak. It was just words. Yes, too weak. This is the type of weakness that turns the world upside down. Zechariah says, not by might or by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. This is what we have at this table. A meal that in all appearances seems very weak. A little bread and some wine. But by the spirit, this meal comes to us as a meal of life. It's abundant life. Bread represents the body of our Lord. The wine represents the blood of our Lord. The weakness of a crucified body 
and the blood given for us is the means of transforming and opposing an army to form us into obedient servants so that the greatness and exceeding might of Nineveh will become the exceeding might of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. We invite to the Lord's table all who are baptized and under the authority of the Lord Jesus and his body, the church. When we eat the bread and drink the wine together, we're acknowledging that we are sinners. We're without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God, and we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come to this simple table. Be strengthened by faith, believing in the Son of God. Be full of hope by the Holy Spirit. Serve God in the Nineveh and against the Goliaths of our age. Amen. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.